I was like, okay, not only do I not really have a lot of time to pull this off, um, like I had to just like really sell the idea. I had to put together an ensemble to sing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just like, I really had to, there, there was no way to, there's no way to half-ass an idea like that. Hey, hello, it's Nadine, and we're back this week with a brand new episode of season two of In Her Lens. In this weekly series, I talk with today's women in film about their journeys, about their work, and their experiences. Thank you for being here. Let's not waste any time. Episode five. I am joined this week on the pod by the fantastic Stephanie Ikonomu. Originally from Long Island, New York, and currently based in Los Angeles, Stephanie is a composer and violinist. Her exploration and study of widely varying musical styles, including classical, experimental, folk, and rock, creates her unique hybridized compositional voice. Her work in film scoring extends from drama to action to comedy and has demanded a real synthesis of electronic and acoustic musical palettes. Stephanie received her bachelor's degree in composition from the New England Conservatory of Music and a master's in composition for visual media from the University of California, Los Angeles. In 2015, she was chosen as one of six fellows for the Sundance Institute Composers Lab at Skywalker Ranch. She is the composer of the new Netflix TV series Jupiter's Legacy, which is based on the comic series by Mark Miller, and she has written music for the Lionsgate star series Step Up Highwater and the second season of Manhunt Deadly Games. Stephanie is the longtime collaborator of Golden Globe-nominated composer Harry Gregson Williams. Together with him, she composed additional music on scores such as Disney's live-action remake of Mulan, The Meg, Equalizer 2, and Ridley Scott's Oscar-nominated film The Martian. Her music can also be heard in films such as The Zookeeper's Wife, Live by Night, Catch-22, and Breath. I mean, the list goes on. In this episode, Stephanie and I talk about her navigation through classical music and orchestral training to the film scoring world. We really break down the steps of creating a score for a film from start to finish. We talk about the contentious temp music and the differences between orchestration for live ensembles and in electronic music. We talk about her breakthrough at the Sundance Composer Lab and prioritizing your personal needs in a very busy, busy career. We extensively discuss her score for the new Netflix series Jupiter's Legacy, which premiered a week after we spoke and is available now to stream. Finally, Stephanie shares about the Alliance for Women Composers and the need for visibility, self-awareness, and inclusivity in the film composing world. This episode is jam-packed, and Stephanie really brings the fire. I am thrilled we all get to enter her world for a little bit. So here is Stephanie Ikonomu on In Her Lens. Hello! Hello there! How are you, Nadine? I am doing very good. How are you? I am well, thank you. Well, welcome to In Her Lens, Stephanie. I'm so happy that you're here and I'm really looking forward to our conversation and to talk about you and and your work. Uh, But before we dive in, if you're down, we tend to start with a round of rapid fire questions so we can kind of get to know you a little bit better and get the mind ticking. Are you in? Let's do it. All right, great. Uh, Dawn or dusk? Dusk. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Wine or beer? I can't, no. <laughs> I can't choose. <laughs> I love them both. Fair, fair. Um, travel to space or to the bottom of the ocean? Space. Favorite subject in school? 
music. <laughs> I would hope so. Yes. Uh, a subject that you wish they taught you in school. How to do your taxes. Yes. <laughs> uh, board game or card game? Um, board game. Appetizer or dessert? Dessert. A city you think people should visit? New York. <laughs> a, a city that you would like to visit? Santorini. Uh, a three-hour movie or a 10-hour series? 10-hour series. Last thing that you read? Oh, no. Oh, God, <laughs> I can't. always gets people. <laughs> I can't remember the name of it. Oh, no. It was like a thriller, like, you know, beach read type of novel. I can't for the life of me remember what it was called. No, Obviously, didn't make that great of an impression on me. <laughs> <laughs> What's your pet peeve? Poor grammar. Ooh. Um, a thing that makes your heart melt. My dog. Mm. Beach or mountains? Mountains. The last thing that you photographed? Uh, my dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, your go-to karaoke song? Oh, no. I've actually never done karaoke, really, somehow. But I feel like it would be, um, you know, like Boston or Foreigner or something. Yes, yes. <laughs> One of those. <laughs> uh, phone calendar or physical planner? Phone calendar. Uh, a movie that you can quote start to finish? Probably something ridiculous like Billy Madison. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, fall or spring? Fall. An unmissable part of your daily routine? Um, just food. Just always eating food. <laughs> food in general, the whole yes, thing. Yes, yes. Uh, which is good because the next question is, if you could have one cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? Italian. Yes. Texting or calling? Um, I do both, but I guess I probably tend to text more. Mm. Um, what is your secret superpower? Mind control. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the last thing that you watched? Um, Bojack Horseman. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Okay, let's just dive in. Let's get to the start, to the beginning. You're from Long Island. Tell us a bit about your childhood, where you grew up, what did home life look like for you? Yeah, so I grew up on Long Island in this town called Northport. Um, I like to compare it a little bit to Dawson's Creek because it like, you know, had the nice little harbor and it was very, you know, <clears throat> lovely, waspy kind of looking. Um, but uh, most of my family's from Queens. Um, so I lived there for when I was a baby and then we moved out to Long Island. Um, my dad is a retired uh, NYPD narcotics detective. Oh, wow. um, and my mom is a CPA, um, and I have an older sister and she, she grew up playing viola. Um, and I think that's sort of what kind of turned me on to music. Um, mm -hmm. even before she started playing viola, actually, I just really had this urge to play piano. And I kept telling my parents, uh, I was probably about six years old and they got me this like tiny little keyboard, like one and a half octave keyboard, um, to kind of mess around with. And I loved it so much. And I think they were like, okay, she sounds, she sounds pretty awful. We should probably get her lessons. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I took piano lessons for many years and after seeing my sister play viola, um, she kind of taught me a little bit about the instrument and that made me want to choose violin for when it came to my, for my time in school to pick an instrument. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I grew up playing, um, in lots of different orchestras and Long Island is kind of a petri dish for sort of artists and things like that, just like creatives. 
Um, <clears throat> neither of my parents are particularly musical. I think, sorry, mom, you're tone deaf, but, um, <laughs> you know, my, my sister, my sister, um, I think was a big influence on me kind of wanting to, to go down that road. And when I got to high school, um, you know, really rare experience at public school, but um, we had a four-year um, intensive composition and music theory program. Um, so I did that for four years, and that's sort of where I started composing, um, you know, like solo piano pieces or like small string orchestra pieces. And that's kind of where my love for this started to develop. And mm -hmm. I had a I had a, such a wonderful teacher for those classes named Mr. Doyle, um, and he used to <laughs> he used shout to play out. <laughs> shout out to Mr. D. Um, he used to play keyboards for Meatloaf, so he was just like kind of this wild, awesome guy, and um, really just kind of fostered my love for writing music. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it came time for me to sort of choose, like, am I going to pursue music as a career? Um, because, you know, it's very hard to sort of tap into that. It, people think, like, by the time you get to high school, if you don't know that, it's too late, you know, to mm -hmm. sort of pursue mm -hmm. music. Um, but I was like, you know what, I love this, and I should try to go to a conservatory just to see what that atmosphere is like. Um, because, you know, I'll give it a it, like a real shot, and if it doesn't work out, then I can say I tried. So yeah. um, <clears throat> I applied to conservatory. I went to New England Conservatory in Boston. And I was just writing, I was just writing concert music still. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't started doing film stuff until um, kind of like my, actually it may have been my first year, but I think mostly my second year um, at conservatory where I had some friends from high school who were like pursuing filmmaking. Mm -hmm. They had a bunch of short films. They're like, hey, listen, do you want to, you know, take a shot at scoring them? And I was All like, right. okay, I don't really know how to do that. But, um, you know, I grew up with a great love for film and television. Um, I think it's always been such a big part of my life. So it made sense to kind of tie the two together. Mm -hmm. And truth be told, like, you know, being a conservatory is so much hard work. You're really honing your craft. You're, um, you know, you're being challenged. You're fighting a lot of your own, like, kind of creative blocks. That was, that was hard for me. And you're kind of doing it all in some ways by yourself, just sort of sitting in a practice room in front of a piano, just like with that page in front of you. Right. And you're just like, I have lots of ideas, but I don't know if any of them are good enough. I don't really know. You know, it, it just felt, it, it felt somewhat isolating and also, um, you know, kind of self-important in a way. I was just like, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm just creating music in a vacuum and it's only my brain and I just like hate this. Yeah. Um, so when I got to do these short films, it was the opposite of that, right? So it was this collaborative process. Um, I had I had the directors telling me like, no, why don't you try this? And I'm like, oh, I, I never would have done that otherwise. And just mm -hmm. other people pushing my me beyond the boundaries that I had set for myself mentally and creatively. Um, I really just fell in love with that process and it felt like a way to kind of just connect my brain to other um, cre creative types. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this feels good. This feels right. So I wanted to specialize in it for my master's. Um, so I moved out to LA after conservatory and I went to UCLA specifically for um, music and media. And that's where I met my employer of many years, Harry Gregson Williams. Um, Harry is, you know, kind of a one of a kind composer. He's done Shrek and Narnia and The Martian and just tons of really, really diverse films and TV shows. Mm -hmm. um, so I met him at UCLA and he kind of pulled me on part time. He was kind of rebuilding a team and he really just sort of needed a, another set of hands at the studio. Um, so I was part-time with him until I finished my degree. And then he was like, okay, you're full-time once I graduated. And 
yeah, it was six years, just um, myself and a coworker. Uh, his name's Paul, Paul Thomason, who's such a brilliant music editor um, and, and composer in his own right. And yeah, it was, it was probably the best place I could have imagined starting, you know, mm. like enter, entering the workforce just because it was an intimate team. Um, Harry is one of those composers who is very, very generous. You know, he's very much a teacher. He like immediately assumed that mentor role with me mm-hmm. and kind of was just like, just sit here, like watch me write, see how we do things. Um, and a lot of our musical sensibilities really aligned as well. So it was like, we were approaching it with similar mindsets. Um, so, you know, little by little he would, you know, be like, okay, why don't you, why don't you try writing this scene? Or why don't you try, you know, fixing this to work with the new picture or, you know, things like that. So. Um, I very quickly kind of just settled into that role of being um, a music apprentice or a composing apprentice. And, you know, over time, that's that's a, like, I don't know how, I'm not sure how it is in other industries with apprenticeships and things, but, you know, thinking about it now, like, it, it takes a lot of trust in someone, like in an employee or like a younger person coming in um, to your already established career um, to be like, yeah, come on in. You get to like, you know, put your fingers all in, all in my music and, and, and contribute and all that. Like, there's a lot of trust that goes into that. Um, and, and so building that relationship with him, you know, obviously the longer I was there, the more responsibility I was given and the more trust was, you know, he, he entrusted me with a lot of, a lot of things about his music and running, running his operation and stuff. Um, so that I feel prepared me so well um, for building my own career, right? So Mm -hmm. not just, it was kind of, he encouraged me to sort of build them concurrently, not just like, okay, you're going to be my assistant for this amount of years, and then you're going to go and start your thing. He was never like that. He was very, um, very, very aware that like, like the connections that I made while working for him were going to be really crucial for when I was I was independent and out on my own. So he was always transparent about my role. You know, like it didn't matter who the director was. Um, it didn't it didn't matter who the studio was. You know, come in for for meetings or playback sessions for the score, and he would be like, "This is Steph. This is my composing assistant. She you know she contributed to the music here." Or when we would have recording sessions, you know, like on Fox Scoring Stage or Sony Scoring Stage. And everybody would be there in the booth. He would throw me up on the conducting stand and conduct the orchestra. And like all of the mm-hmm. studio executives could see like, oh, okay, this is the role that she has here. Mm-hmm. And he, he did that very, very intentionally. He knew what he was doing. Um, he, he knew that that was going to like stick in people's minds for the future. You know, if they were looking to hire me for, for a project on my own, they'd be like, oh yeah, I have this experience. I've, I've seen her. I've seen her do her thing. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of the best place imaginable to end up when you're so gr- when you're so green and growing up professionally in that sort of environment was was really 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 important for getting me set up and feeling firm um now that you know I'm not working under him anymore right so and coupled with the fact that you know like I only mentioned a couple of his scores but in the 6 years that I was with him we were writing for films like like I mentioned the marsh um we did this like indie surfing film um called called breath which was like just really intimate kind of rock guitar score mm-hmm. um you know we did like some disney nature films which are almost like full-on animation so cool. scores right, yeah. right, yeah. um 
you know, we did the Disney remake of Mulan. We did like some smaller TV series and just having those experiences on such vastly different projects was like a huge challenge in and of itself. But like, it was great because it's like, okay, we sat down to do this, this indie surfing movie. Do we know how to write this music? Not really. Let's give it a shot. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we, we all came out with something that we were really proud of. And now we have those tools kind of like in our toolkit to be like, okay, right. stylistically, I know how to approach something like this. So mm-hmm. it was, it was basically just years of building up those tools essentially um, to the point where, you know, I feel, I feel good about being able to tackle um, lots of versatile, versatile projects. And I hope that I can have a career that's filled with, you know, doing lots of, lots of different stuff. Cause that's where, that's where the fun happens. Yeah, definitely. Talking as like a real rookie and for the listeners who don't know much about film composing and scoring, um, give us a rundown of the stages of building a film score. So you get a script or you get a project, where do you start? Yeah, so composers tend to get hired at very different parts of the project. There are some directors who really want to hire a composer in pre-production, um, you know, before they've shot a frame of, of, of film, um, just to kind of get the creative wheels turning um, for both them and the composer, just like kind of trying some stuff out. And they're, those directors are the ones that are quite few and far between, but they tend to like, you know, play the score on the set while they're shooting, you know, like something like Joker. Um, And then, you know, more often than not, composers are hired in post-production once they've wrapped filming. um, And when they're kind of in the edit suite, getting getting all their footage together and trying to, you know, make a thing of it, right? and so once a composer is hired, you know, getting a job in and of itself is a, is a miracle sometimes. But um, uh, yeah, sometimes you, you don't see something for a while. Sometimes you just get sent, you know, a couple scripts or something. Um, or you get, you know, if it's a TV series, a first episode that they have cut together, a rough cut. Um, but more often than not, the ideal process is, um, whether it be for film or television, um, you know, you, f- you figure out who your main collaborators are, whether it's the director or if you're on a TV series, you know, a showrunner or producers. Um, and you plan what's called a spotting session. Mm-hmm. So you sit down all together and you play back the episode or the film and you stop at every moment then and kind of discuss what the musical um, profile should be doing. Like nine and a half times out of 10, um, there'll be something in there called temp music. It's called a temp track, which is basically pre-existing scores or pre-existing tracks of music that exist in the world um, mm-hmm. that the, the editor puts up to their cut um, just because it helps so much with pacing and, and it helps them cut their stuff um, in it with a more, you know, like healthy pace to it. Um, so kind of when you're in the spotting session, you're hearing, you're listening to the temp track and you're hearing all this temp music. There's like, you know, temp tracks are really contentious for composers. Mm. Um, some people love them. Some people hate them. Uh, I can understand why people hate them because sometimes, unfortunately, what happens is, you know, your director or your showrunner is living with this temp music for a really, really long time, you know, like watching back all of these different cuts with the, with this temp music. They can get quite attached to it. Like you mm, watch it. I can imagine, watch, yeah. You watch something enough and it just sort of like kind of sticks. It doesn't even matter if it's really working to the best that it can. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so composers already have like a built-in kind of hurdle to try to get over with that temp track, depending on who you're working with. Um, 
I, I feel like I've been fortunate enough to mostly work with people who don't have any kind of love for their temp track, which is great. <laughs> um, but, you know, I actually really love having temp tracks in there because it, it's a starting point for music. And mm-hmm. more often than not, you're going to find that, you know, these directors and producers, they don't have lots of experience talking about music or being specific about music. Why would they? They shouldn't. They didn't, you know, they didn't right. study that. Right. Um, so a temp track is a good place just to start talking very vaguely about the big picture. You know, okay, what does that temp track do for you? Do you like where it comes in? Do you like where it comes out? Um, do you like some of the instruments? Like if there's a piano in there, like, do you like what the piano is doing? Do you like the instrument of the piano? You know, um, do you, do you like the scale of it? Like, does it feel intimate or does it, do you want it to feel bigger in scale? Um, is the tempo right? That's the biggest thing. Um, I think is just like the pace of the music, because Mm -hmm. like I said, editors sometimes do cut to like music. That's really critical is, is to kind of just be able to ask those questions um, in like layman's terms in a vague way. And I think the temp track really does help with that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll get directors who like are musically inclined in some way. And sometimes that actually makes it more difficult to communicate about Mm -hmm. the score. Um, just because, you know, like what they interpret to be a, cer- a certain like jargon or something musically actually is the opposite of what they're describing or it's just like not, there's just like right. something clashing, clashing there. Um, so oftentimes I find working with others, it's best to just talk abstractions, you know, like what do you like about that sound or like, you know, what's the emotion of the scene and do you want the music to play into that emotion or do you want it to play, you know, the opposite of that emotion? Um, being able to just kind of talk like a person, I think, is the best thing um, mm-hmm. when, when you're working with score. So essentially, you kind of have that spotting session and you come back to your studio and you sort of make like a list of every single scene that needs music. We call those cues. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start to kind of just like, depending on the project, um, just sort of sort of dive in little by little. What I like to do before I start is at least have some kind of conceptual understanding of of Mm. what I'm trying what the music is I want to accomplish Mm -hmm. so oftentimes you know I'll read an episode or I'll read just the entire film and be like like, who are our main characters and do we want to develop some kind of theme some kind of Mm -hmm. melody for them that follows them through the story that ebbs and flows with their character that um you know evolves or devolves depending on the story So oftentimes I do try to start with writing a theme, whether it's one theme or seven themes, if it's a huge TV Mm -hmm. series, you know, um, that's a really important place to start because then once you kind of get writing, you have um, like you have a creative idea to lean back. And here we are. This is the world that we're living in right now. I was like, we just lost connection. Okay. The last thing I heard, apologies. Uh, we're living in in these no times, worries, and um, the internet is not as we are. We certainly as I are. Always hope it will be. Um, that no. you're writing themes, and when you have a theme, it's something to lean back on, and that's when. I'm- <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, 
once I kind of have that theme, I'll come here and then I'll sit down at my composing rig, which is made up of a couple of computers, um, a sequencer, which is kind of the the actual hosted program where I write the actual kind of notes themselves um, with, you know, it digitally, basically. Um, and then another computer which houses lots of sounds and sample libraries. Um, so not to get like too much into the nitty gritty mm -hmm. of like how we make these sounds, um, you know, essentially like I have a keyboard here and lots of sample libraries and depending on the track that I'm selecting or the sample library or the instrument, um, you know, a, a different sound comes out. So it could be a clarinet, it could be like a synth pulse, it could be, you know, lots of things. And um, you can program those things very in depth and really change lots of the parameters to, to affect the sound. Um, so there's, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole process being able to kind of set that up the way that you want it, like get a template that works for you, um, and be able to be as creative as you can within, you know, the, yeah. the options that you have. Um, so yeah, I'll kind of sit down and I'll watch a scene, um, knowing that I've already spotted it with the producers or the director and I'll watch it without the temp music. So I'll watch it just just dialogue and effects and kind of try to do all of those things that we've already talked about, which is what does the pace actually feel like when I take the temp music out, you know, and just kind of like tap it or just like feel, feel the pulse um, and figure out what mm -hmm. tempo that actually is. And oftentimes that's, that's kind of a starting point for a scene. Um, and, you know, if it's like a long action cue or um, the music needs to be really, really precise about hitting cuts or just like doing something at a certain moment, um, I'll put like just little markers in my sequence and be like, okay, this is happening here, this is happening here. So I can kind of have a little bit um, of foresight, like how I need to shape the music or like what it needs to be doing at certain moments. Um, and then from there, it's just like a lot of experimentation, um, a lot of just kind of throwing stuff up to the wall and seeing what feels right. right with the picture. For me, it's like a very instinctual thing, but it's also just like, does it feel like, is there something about this that just like feels wrong? Like, is there something off? Um, so it's kind of dialing in all of those elements until it feels, you know, like it's like it was always meant to sort of be that way. Um, that, that whole exploratory period there's lots of self-loathing did I ever know how to do this to begin with what am I right. doing with my life um you know there's lots of that uh yeah. the good the good thing is that there's usually not a lot of time to like dwell on your own self-loathing um because mm. like there's lots of you deadlines you just gotta right, just right. like just you know um get over yourself and do it it's a job um but yeah that's kind of the the practical nature of at least getting started mm. and then you know from there depending on what kind of score it is, you always have to have in mind, you know, is it a really big orchestral score where I want to hire an ensemble and record them um, mm -hmm. once everything's approved and like in the film. Um, so that's a process in and of itself, getting prepared for a recording session. Um, mm -hmm. I tend to record soloists along the way. So I'll like get in a friend of mine who's a vocalist um, or a guitarist or a percussionist. I find getting those people on during the writing process is really crucial for the mm -hmm. way that I work. Um, it kind of just like opens up the possibilities and um, challenges what I can only feel like I'm limited in, in some mm. way sometimes to this because I'm so used to working with these sounds and, um, you know, there's always more to explore and I'm always trying to do that. But sometimes just getting a performer in to breathe life into the music and just mm -hmm. hear it, they had they bring their own set of musical sensibilities. So, of course, um, yeah that collaboration is really exciting. But, you know, if it's a big orchestral score, 
and you're planning on having a scoring session, um, you have to involve, you know, like an orchestrator who comes in and basically takes the music out of the computer and translates it into actual sheet music into a score. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the copyist who makes all of the parts for the players. And, <clears throat> you know, there's lots of people who have to engineer the session and get set up for that. And um, it's a whole process, but it's, it's very, very fun and stressful and kind of like a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. But being able to get up in front of an, a live ensemble and just sort of hear all of that being interpreted by other people is is a really wonderful way to kind of break that isolation that we do sometimes feel as composers kind of right. create, creating in our own space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then after, you know, after all those recordings, we tend to get it mixed so it's sounding as good as it can be. And then we deliver it to the dub stage um, where they're kind of mixing it all in with the dialogue and effects. And uh, usually mixed a little bit too quiet um, for most composers' <laughs> tastes. It's like, oh God, we did all of that, and it's so quiet. <laughs> but, it's in the background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, I mean, there's lots of there's lots of um, you know dubbing engineers who respect music so much, and they'll just like really make it loud and proud. And um, uh, that doesn't always happen, but that's why it's it's always important for composers to like <laughs> not have any surprises once the project mm-hmm. comes out. It's like be involved, like be on the dub stage for playback, so you're hearing how everything's sitting in the mix and and right, all that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you know sometimes you're lucky enough to get a score album, so you get to you know work on setting up a soundtrack release and working with a record label. Um, and, you know, editing the music so it feels like it's good listening experience on its own for someone who's going to who's gonna do that. Um, sometimes that's not like leaving all of the cues as they were written. Sometimes it's cutting them or combining them with other things. Um, and yeah, I think that's like probably from start to finish, like the, yeah. the, the overall process for, for creating a score. It's super interesting. Um, what instruments do you tend to write on when you start coming from a symphonic concert background and what ways is your classical training a basis for what you create today I think it's always there um you know electronic music and and synth programming is a big part of what I do and it has been um since college really so there's a lot of just like approaching things from a very classical perspective because of my upbringing so always looking at like lines and where they're going or like um harmony and the pace of the harmony um and just shapes of phrases and things like that I think that all comes from my sort of background and and being trained in in concert music but what's interesting is that when I when I started getting into um electronic music more and sort of creating this hybrid um sound with um, acoustic music, um, I found that I was applying those same kinds of lenses to electronic music. So I was still looking at electronic music like um, as if it were orchestrating, you know, for like a whole symphony or something like that. So like what's what's the bass sound and how do I clarify the bass sound, whether it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, low trombones or if it's like a synth bass. Um, you know, like how, how do you carve out spaces for these things? It really is like orchestration for an ensemble, but for electronics. So there really is so much overlap there just as far as like what even is sound. Um, so I feel like, um, when I sit down to write a cue, it's, it's not just like me starting with strings or something like that. I think that it's kind of just melded into one at this point. Um, you know, I might start with a high string, but also have like a high pad that's also on the same tone, but it kind of deepens the sound. So they're sort of kind of intertwined. 
definitely when I'm writing themes, I tend to write them on piano um, just because it's so visual and I just kind of started on piano. So it feels like the right instrument to do that on. Mm -hmm. um, but usually before I start writing, I'll have an idea like, okay, do I want to have an instrument for this character or something? Um, and then I'll kind of just like, you know, um, for this show Jupiter's Legacy that's coming out next week, I there was a superhero narrative and one of the characters is just like that tropey superhero traditional guy. So I, I was like, I want his theme to appear on French horn a lot of the time because it's, it's such like the typical sound for that. So that I was able to kind of subvert expectations when we realized he's not really that, you know, it was like mm -hmm. setting him up, like painting him in this, in this light when, and then I could do something else and show that he's not actually like that. Um, really reflecting the narrative back in in the music as well exactly yeah so um you know i sat down and i was like i have a french horn in mind for this so i started with that instrument and then kind of flushed out the cue from there mm -hmm. so it does depend but it definitely is a balance and a mix for me between kind of those electronic hybrid elements and and um you know orchestral elements mm -hmm. Are there certain tools, and you mentioned a little bit um, the sample library that are indispensable in your arsenal and how do they kind of build your template? Yeah, there's there's a lot, you know, it's like mm -hmm. really, oh my God, it's flooring just how many options there are out there. Out there. It's yeah. pretty crazy. Um, Spitfire, there's this company called Spitfire Audio, which does lots of, um, I mean, just incredible string libraries, unique string libraries, more experimental string libraries. Um, and they have, I mean, they have literally every instrument you can imagine. They have brass and woodwinds and great percussion. Um, so that tends to fill out a lot of my template. Um, there are tons of synth instruments that I love to use over and over again. Um, uh, this company called Yuhi, which is great. Um, and they, yeah, there's just like, I mean, I could seriously go on and on and on. Like for every <laughs> instrument, there's like a library that I use. You know, it's one yeah. of those weird things. It's like, there are these great, like, just like all orchestra libraries, all orchestral. And I tend to just be like, oh, but I like the clarinet from this one specific library. <laughs> or like, I like the violin harmonic from this other library. Uh, and you kind of just like develop those sorts of preferences as you go. Um, so there's such a huge mixture in my template of, of different different creators and sample libraries and stuff like that which and always discovering more because there's always so much unique stuff coming out too so it's a never-ending um you know bottomless pit of spending money on this stuff for me <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar in the in the in this industry mm -hmm. um in 2015 you were chosen as one of the six fellows for the sundance institute composers lab at the skywalker ranch what was this experience like and can you give a little bit of insight how it has kind of changed and pushed you forward in your career yeah sundance um being chosen for the sundance labs was was a really wonderful amazing gift um just being able to go up to skywalker um it it was myself and five other fellows and you sort of just like get your own studio set up there um and it was an interesting opportunity for me to kind of just like strip strip it back to the bare bones because like i wasn't bringing a computer up there i was just sort of bringing a drive you know like of mm. of some sounds and stuff um, and I brought a mic and they had like some things there, but not a lot. So it was sort of like terrifying, not being able to kind of like draw from my usual tools that mm. I, I always create music with. But I found that to be like the best thing that I could have done and the best experience I could have had because I ended up finding more creative ways to make music. Um, it was up there that I just like, you know, 
I had a mic there and like, I'm a violinist, like that's my primary instrument as we talked about. Um, but I just had a mic there. So I would just like start doing vocal stuff, even though I'm not a vocalist, mm -hmm. I would just kind of do some experimental sounds or just see what I could create. Um, as opposed to relying so heavily on just like what's in the box there, you know, um, of sample libraries and having that experience, just doing some vocals or just like tapping on stuff for some percussion or, you know, I just, I felt I was experimenting more because I didn't have um, the usual things to fall back on in my arsenal. Mm -hmm. And that really stuck with me after I left. I still do that very much. Um, that just kind of became part of who I was. And I never really was like that as a composer until then. But mm -hmm. just like the idea of um, feeling a spontaneity to create, whether, you know, it doesn't really matter if you can play the instrument or you, you know, like, doesn't really matter. It's just mm -hmm. creating sound and then seeing how you can manipulate it. Um, because oftentimes just having that live organic source um, from a live recording is is so amazing to just give depth to the music. Mm -hmm. So being at being at the Sundance Labs was really important, like just like artistic moment in my life where I felt like I was able to just break out a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there were no like there were no stakes really. So like people mm -hmm. were always just like just try just try stuff, and if you fail, it doesn't matter because there's no, you know, like this isn't in a way, this isn't real life. Like this isn't like you're going to lose a job because of it. Right, and right. that was a wonderful environment to be able to create music in because I feel like there's always an element of whether it comes from yourself or an outside source, like you're so afraid to slip up because you think it's going to just be taken away from you. Um, so being able to do that, I think I discovered a part of who I was as a musician that I didn't really know. It felt uncovered. So that was really exciting. And then also just meeting a new group of peers who were really just like totally drastically different um, musicians. That was, that was wonderful. And being at Skywalker Ranch, which is just like a fantasy world, like tucked <laughs> away from everything else was really crazy. Yeah. And just like being able to record a whole orchestra at the end of the, uh, at the end of the, the couple weeks, it, it just, it, it was a really wild experience, but I still think back on those times and I can pinpoint that as the moment where I feel like I, something opened up for me there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting when you, um, and I, I, I know I hear this a lot when I talk to any creatives in, in the filmmaking world or just being an artist, when you have space to figure stuff out that is without pressure and that is without the fear of failure or fear of judgment, that certain doors or things get unlocked because you have that kind of space. Totally. You talked a little bit about it earlier, but you know, composing happens often in dark rooms for long hours alone. What are some of the day-to-day -day realities of being being a composer? Yeah, a glimpse behind the curtain of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the glimpses is less. It, it's certainly not glamorous. It's it's a little bit boring. I mean, I think for most composers, it's you know, waking up. I I am not one of those composers that starts really early. I I tend to start like like at 10 when we started this call, um, uh, sometimes a little bit later if I don't feel like working that morning. Um, but yeah, being a freelance composer is 
a lot of long hours. It's, you know, I come into the studio and I kind of just sort of try to set a plan for the day. Um, I try to set weekly plans. I'm like kind of more of an organized person, especially if you're on like a TV series or a show or like a film that has a really tight deadline. Um, just like knowing that you have to get a certain amount of minutes written that week is really important. Um, and it saves you from, you know, ripping your hair out. Actually, no, there's still, there's still a lot of that, um, but always there. It's always there. Um, so just like sort of having a plan for the day or even the week. So you're able to accomplish a certain amount of objectives. Um, like sometimes I'll come into the week knowing, okay, I want to record, um, a trumpet player on Thursday and it's Monday. So I need to write the cue by the latest, you know, Wednesday and then get, get the part prepared for him and, um, you know, make a Dropbox folder with all the material and then just like give him guidance. So it's just like, okay, I know I need to like set these goals for myself, depending on, um, what I've, what I'm thinking in the middle of the project that I'm on at the moment. Um, so I'll come in and do that. I'll go outside and sit in the sun for like 10 minutes wondering why I chose this as a career. Um, you know, I'll play with my dog and laugh at him as he tries to catch squirrels. Um, and then my husband and I will eat lunch and then we'll complain about why we chose to do this for a living. And, um, uh, and yeah, just kind of come back and just, and just sort of pound through it. It's, it's, um, Sometimes it's sometimes it's an easy day and you get through more than you thought you would. Sometimes it's tough and you're like, okay, well, I'm pushing more towards the end of the week to do than I would like. Um, but it's it's a lot of that. And I like truth be told, this work as well as so much other creative work is incredibly, incredibly draining. Um just emotionally and energy wise. Um, it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of constant work. You always think, you know, like, oh, I'll finally have time to take a breath after this project is over, but something else comes at the end of the project you're on. And it's just like schedules are never neat and tidy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, doing, working that way for many years and working with Harry for so many years where it was, it was very structured because, you know, I was an employee. Um, yeah. we had crazy hours all the time. And then I was also balancing my own projects. Like I saw, I saw very quickly, um, just kind of like things from my personal life fade into the background a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and it happened sort of without you realizing it, but I would realize, oh my God, like I haven't seen a friend in, you know, six weeks or something mm -hmm. or two mm -hmm. months, or like, I haven't talked to my sister in how long. And it's, it's scary, like, because it becomes a little bit of a vortex sometimes when you mm -hmm. have all of these high pressure situations where you need to produce and you need to, you know, um, just like do your job to the best of your ability and hit these deadlines. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the longer that you're in this job, you start to realize, like, if I don't prioritize other things that aren't my work or that aren't my creative life, like things are just kind of going to crumble because that's just the way things are. And I don't, I think this is, I don't think this is unique to composers. I think it's any, I think it's pretty much anyone, but especially in, in a creative or artistic field, certainly, um, where you just have to like really put in a lot of effort to find out what are my priorities and like, how do I keep that? How do I make that an important part of my life? Even when I have all of this work in front of me and all of this mm -hmm. very demanding um, work, so I do try to, you know, I'm not very, I, that work-life balance thing really still eludes me and I think it always will, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, making time for my family or my partner, my dog, um, maybe one hobby occasionally, <laughs> you know, like those are the things that yeah. um, I'll 
try, I'll try to do like a semblance of that. Not, it's not every day, but just like, you know, finding time and carving out space in your life for these things. Mm -hmm. Um, even when, you know, you come into the studio and you just have to grind it out, like even just taking 10 minutes to like talk to someone who's important to you every day. Um, that's, that's become, I hope that's become like a permanent fixture in my life to do things like that because it really is just so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mental health. And like, it will in turn feed your work. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. It will keep it more enjoyable. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the scores that you have written in your recent work. Uh, recent projects that you've done include uh, Step Up High Water, Manhunt Deadly Gains, the Disney Plus documentary series Marvel 616. Um, what are some of the textures or samples or colors that you find yourself gravitating towards often? Yeah, in the case of um, Step Up, which is, you know, obviously like an established franchise, which has lots of songs and, um, you know, has its kind of own musical profile, it, taking the score out of it completely. Um, mm -hmm. I found myself sort of just kind of gravitating towards in, more intimate textures, more intimate instruments, um, lots of acoustic or electric guitar, um, lots of piano or electric keys, and then a lot of electronics in there as well. Um, there were some darker kind of timelines in that story. So a lot of the, the kind of synth electronic palette tended to work for, for those types of things. Um, Manhunt Deadly Games was kind of a mixture of things. Um, you know, in that one, we're kind of in the wilderness of North Carolina for a lot of the show. So there was elements of some like, you know, like folky violin fiddle type mm. of stuff, um, you know, mandolin, like just like some some regional elements to that score that ended up in there. Um, but, you know, the scale of it did vary a lot. So, you know, we're like in cities and we're just like following all different storylines. So mm -hmm. um, it ended up being like, you know, lots of string ensemble stuff, a lot of electronics um, but yeah, it did have like a hint of those kinds of, um, more like Southern elements at times. Mm -hmm. And then it sort of closed in to being more dark and intimate with, with some like piano and stuff like that as, as we sort of finished that story. Um, and yeah, Marvel 616, um, because that was a documentary, I, that was, that was the first documentary I had ever done. And the story of, those episodes were totally different. So I did two episodes of that series. Um, and the first episode was about the history of the women of Marvel. Um, so like dating back to like, I don't even know, the 30s or something like that. Mm -hmm. The story went back. So it was kind of just like this epic historical journey and the music um, needed to do all sorts of things. So there was like a little big band and there was like a little, you know, like we're in the 70s now, we're in the 80s. So it's just like there was a genre element to it. Um, but for the most part, you know, there was, I mean, there was some solo violin stuff in there. Um, lots of like, uh, that was a synth heavy score as well. Everything I do, I guess, tends to be quite synth heavy, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that one got to take all sorts of different, of different shapes, which was fun. Um, so yeah, it really depends on the project. I mean, you get to kind of flex different muscles if you're lucky, depending on, on what the, the actual picture demands. So all three of those are actually somewhat different in a way um but it's that's yeah being able to pick a palette for a specific show and create something special and unique for it is the most fun part about writing music i think
And your most recent one, which I had the pleasure and honor of previewing, is the new Netflix series, Jupiter's Legacy. And it's directed by Stephen Knight, and it's based on uh, a comic book by Mark Miller. And it's premiering next week, the 7th of May. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it is such a beautiful epic, so consistently rich, and it has just like such vast space, the music. Um, where did you go initially for inspiration? Because I knew that this was obviously a superhero narrative, um, I actually tried to close myself off to other superhero scores or like superhero stories. I really just kind of wanted to focus on Jupiter's legacy because it was doing something different and I wanted it to have its own profile. I didn't want it to like necessarily speak to other things or involve palettes that we know um, unless I was doing it intentionally like I did for one of the themes which was like mm -hmm. make it feel like it's a superhero theme but like subverting that expectation later. Um, so I was mainly just inspired by the actual series itself. Um, it's a really wild story that has so many just so many characters and storylines and we're hopping time periods between the 20s and 30s and present day and there was just so much like there was so much scope there that was really exciting the cinematography was totally different in the past like the aspect ratio like everything about it was different in the past than it was in the present um so it was a unique challenge and i felt really inspired just by the actual scripts and the the episodes themselves to um you know like figure out how do i create a really unique musical profile for the story yeah yeah it's just so exciting to listen to and i think that that for you know somebody who just loved watching movies i think it's just like the perfect example of just like a, a really great score Thank you. so you write the cues you build up a mock you present it to the director what are the most daunting and what was like the most exciting stage of creating that specific score for you yeah so <laughs> the penultimate episode episode seven um is just it's like a feature film in and of itself it's mm -hmm. um you know it's really the the origin episode we're following our superhero characters our first generation superhero characters and in the 20s and 30s and we're finding out how they got actually got their powers so episode seven is kind of the pinnacle episode where they arrive on this island and they've been driven there um, through our main character sheldon who's also known as the utopian played by josh dumel he's driven there through like all sorts of psychosis and visions and he's getting these hints of like you know latitude and longitude just like all sorts of um things and he's seeing images of his dead father and it's just like everybody's worried that he's really just spiraled into madness and um they go on this journey with him because they're hoping to just like show him you know like this isn't healthy like we just want to we, we love you we're here for you kind of thing <laughs> um but you know they they end up on this island after all of it and they realize okay he's not so crazy after all um and once they're on the island they sort of discover um something very strange is happening like very odd things are happening where it would be sunny one second and then suddenly it would start snowing or there's like a dust storm or there's just like all sorts of weird things happening and emotionally the island is actually turning them against each other so they're kind of just like being pitted against each other when they really need to be um you know working together and cooperating to to get to the end of their journey um there's a scene the last two scenes of the episode um when they're on the island were a very specific creative challenge which i've never had to face before um 
on Jupiter's legacy, I had the, you know, uncommon experience of actually sitting down and we spotted all of the episodes like before I had even started writing. That's not always the case with TV just because, um, you know, sometimes they're still filming as you're writing the music for the previous episode or something like that. So this one they had wrapped filming completely and they really had good cuts of all of the episodes. So that was really great because I could kind of plan things musically that I wanted to happen later and just sort of like unwind that and sort of like mm-hmm. kind of build towards something for this, right. you know, which I was hoping would really benefit the shape of the story. So in episode seven, there's just like this wonderful, bizarre scene, um, which is the scene where they're kind of given their powers, they're granted their powers. And they just kind of like, end up on the moon of Jupiter and it's just like this really insane thing and there's no dialogue and I saw that and I was like okay this is this is nuts like the music has to do something bold right like Mm -hmm. it has to do it has to be on that level in some way so before I had even written a note of music I decided like I wanted to write this big chorale like this big kind of requiem choir piece for that moment using uh, the main theme that I had written for for Sheldon's character, but also that's kind of the show theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was before I had written that theme either, but I was like, that feels like a good moment to kind of just like have a big theme, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, um, that's an idea. And I kind of sold the producers on the idea and they were like, that sounds great. We can't wait to hear it when you get there. <laughs> and um, I was like, okay, well, it's going to be a little bit strange just to suddenly have a choir in episode seven and there's like no vocals anywhere else. Um, but I didn't know at that point. I mean, I could plan these things because I hadn't written anything yet. So mm-hmm. I basically just sort of unraveled the idea of the chorale and ended up, you know, experimenting with live vocal recordings. Um, so I got an, my closest friend from childhood, uh, her name's Ari Mason. She's an incredible vocalist. Um, and we just kind of sat down and she sat there in front of the mic and we, we recorded all sorts of like really strange experimental vocals. Um, you know, nothing that sounds at all like a choir. Like I wanted it to feel like these just weird fragments that were teasing this choir thing all throughout the entire season. So she recorded just these strange modules of like, you know, like Latin chanting or overtone singing, um, just like really odd uh, vocal techniques. And they were kind of just like tucked in there at moments where we sort of see Sheldon kind of fall down these rabbit holes and we see him descend into this madness. Um, And it sort of just became the theme of like, you know, every time he finds out another clue, it's just hinting and building towards this this whole journey that they're on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the intention there was was to sort of make that choir moment feel earned. Like we're kind of, we were being prepared for it or Sheldon was being shown parts of this like along the way for his entire journey. Um, so that was something that I had, I was really excited to do. And then <laughs> episode seven came, you know, I had written this score for six episodes and I was like, Okay, episode seven came. That episode was 55 minutes long and there was 52 minutes of score. And I had 10 to 12 days to do it. (laughs) So I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so I set myself up for this incredibly (laughs) challenging creative thing. Um, And the producers are really excited about it. And I was like, okay, not only do I not really have a lot of time to pull this off, Um, like I had to just like really sell the idea. I had to put together an ensemble to sing it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was just like, I really had to 
there, there was no way to, there's no way to half-ass an idea like that. So right. it, was, it was very daunting and challenging, but ultimately, like I discussed <laughs> at the beginning when we started talking, like I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of time to freak out. Like I was mm -hmm. freaking out a lot internally, but I was just like, you just have to do it. And the adrenaline's pumping. Um, so I sat down and, um, something came out and I second guessed it twice and rewrote it twice very quickly. And I was just like, I think the first idea is generally usually the best one sometimes. <laughs> so I went with that and, um, kind of like over the course of, I think I wrote that piece in two days and then like got an orchestrator involved to like make the choir score. Um, and when you're writing choir music or any vocal music, really, there's another added layer of what are they going to be singing on? What words are they going to sing? Right. So right. They, they can do oohs and ahs or, you know, vowels. Um, but for this, I was like, I, I feel like it should be something, <laughs> something important. So um, I, I dove into Mark Lahr's original comic series um, and I sort of found the scenes in the comic series that were the same scenes that were um, in the episode and took his text and had it translated into Latin. So like we had some Latin chanting building up to this moment. So um, yeah, all of the Latin text came from Mark Millar technically wrote it. Very cool. Um, so <laughs> really cool insight into that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that felt like a nice way to just sort of create more meaning out of it, out of, out of a moment. Um, so that was, that's probably a piece that I'm just really proud of, um, that I kind of, it, I think I think we did pull it off in the end, and especially at that time, I think it was in August or September of last year. Um, there were no scoring sessions happening really at all in in LA. Um, there were, you know, like some string stuff, some woodwinds, some brass stuff here and there, just totally isolated, very very distanced. Um, mm -hmm. But choir was not being recorded; it was just way too risky. Um, so I was like, I have this huge choir piece. How do I how do I do this? Um, yeah. so I called, I called the choir contractor and I was like, listen, do you have vocalists who have like a good home studio set up that can record themselves? He's like, I'll find you the best ones. And we found nine vocalists, incredible vocalists, and they all multi-tracked themselves, which is they recorded like, you know, multiple versions of, of themselves singing. They each recorded themselves six times and each of their takes, um, were just like slightly differently inter interpreted, right? Um, just like different performance and I got all their stuff back and I sent it to a mixer and half an hour later he sent it, he sent it to me and it was just this gorgeous lush sounding choir it sounded like they were all in the same room it sounded like there was like wow. 80, 80 people singing I was really blown away at what was possible you know I mean I think that's a really positive thing to come out of um, all of the hardship of last year is just realizing that there are ways to make music together even if we're not physically together Mm -hmm. And there are ways to kind of have it, have it all just sort of just pull it off. And it's so beautiful to hear just about the layers of that scene. And not only is it from the comic book, but on top of everything, it's also happening during this time. And it's yeah. just, it's a real timestamp. <laughs> yeah, and it was nuts. It's really exciting. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. I can imagine. Um, I... I'm really interested just in the process of creating for television or film when you are the lead composer. How large was your team when you were working on this? Um, yeah, so every composer kind of works differently. Um, I, 
it was it was really just me and then i um, my husband is also a composer um and kind of when the deadlines were getting a little crazy i did need an extra set of hands um mm -hmm. so he, he contributed some additional music as well um especially in episode seven when things were like oh god we have no time what are we doing um so yeah he 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 wrote some really wonderful cues in there um and it just all sat in perfectly just emotionally and just with everything that I had created leading, you know, for the rest of the score. Um, yeah, he, he contributed additional music to a lot of episodes. Um, but other than that, it was just me. I don't have an assistant. Um, I, I, it, you know, there were lots of amazing soloists that recorded on this that I was able to kind of call up and they recorded remotely. Um, I have a friend from college who played trumpet on on this and he's in Minneapolis and he was just like, yeah, I'll just throw up a mic and did lots of weird experimental stuff. Um, my friend Ari Mason, she recorded so many vocals throughout and also viola da gamba, which is a really cool instrument. Um, there was, you know, a cellist, Ro Rowan, that I recorded. Um, there was some like woodwinds for in episode six, they go to Morocco. So there were some like regional woodwinds that were there um just like i want i want to say like around 10 really amazing soloists that recorded all remotely on this so um you know they're not part of the composing team but they're still part of like the music team i think of them like that um but yeah as far as the composing it was it was just myself and and my husband and his studios <laughs> right next to mine in the backyard so it was, uh, it really that was just great. kind of like a closed in sort of isolated experience but it was it was still so wonderful mhm mm mhm before we wrap up i want to talk a little bit about just being a woman in the composing world because the statistics are wildly jarring mm -hmm. uh in 2019 the center of uh study for women in film and tv recorded that in the previous year 2018 uh 94 of the top 250 box office films were composed by men so six percent composed by women and then obviously the um statistics for bipoc artists is far more alarming mm -hmm. and these spaces are primarily white it is no longer waiting for a meritocracy it's push for the inclusivity uh what has your experience been like being in these spaces and where do you see the change happening or not happening or needing to happen yeah it's a great question um it is very alarming um and it still is, despite the fact that we are have made some great progress in the past couple of years, particularly since the Me Too movement. Um, it, it's interesting, like coming from the concert world, which also I was aware that, you know, there certainly are less women writing concert music, too. But all throughout high school and college, I had really no like self-awareness, like, am I the only woman in the room? Because I've never felt like I was. And then I came to LA and it was blatantly obvious. It was mm. just, it was really quite shocking. It was hard not to, not to realize it. Um, and I didn't really understand why that was. And I feel like I've, I've tried to talk to many people about like, you know, what were your experiences in college? Like, did you feel this way? You know, my husband went to Berkeley College of Music and he, he he remembered he was like there was probably two two women in my class and um in a sea of men and it was it was no no surprise to him as a man knowing that and just kind of one i can't believe i didn't really realize until i moved to la and was sort of put in these studio positions or like going to a recording session and being the only woman in the booth you know i was just it was it was quite shocking to me and i felt so silly that i didn't really understand mm. that but i also felt fortunate that up until that point, I feel like I have had just nobody has made me feel a certain way about my mm -hmm. musical contributions because of the fact that I'm a woman. Um, 
but yeah, all of that really shifted once I came here. Um, it became really abundantly clear that no matter how you carried yourself or how talented you were or how decorated you were, there was always this asterisk next to your work for some mm -hmm. reason. It's like, oh yeah, she's a great composer. But in everybody's head, it was just like, oh, is she just good because she, for a right. female she's composer? A right. Um, and that's still incredibly nauseating to me because that very much exists. It doesn't matter <laughs> how many times you have to, you, you prove yourself again and again. It's just, it's an exhausting process that I think is, I don't, I don't really, you know, I think we're all trying to just sort of get into the psyche of those people and, and understand what we can really do to change the landscape of that. I belong to something called the Alliance for Women Film Composers, which is a really wonderful initiative that um, kind of gives a tangible sort of image to female composers in this industry. Um, there's hundreds of women who are involved, ranging from actual film composers to concert composers to songwriters to arrangers. Um, it's just a really diverse group of, of female artists. Mm -hmm. And I've been on the board with them for, for a few years now. And there are so many wonderful, like, wonderful active steps that have been taken um, by the leaders of that organization to place importance on outreach. Um, so making sure we, we know our community, um, making sure that we offer them as much support and opportunity as we can. Um, I was fortunate enough to create a mentorship program with them, with a couple of other composers from the Alliance. We kind of all noticed that for some reason there was not the same access for younger female composers to like high A-list composers, really decorated mm -hmm. composers. We saw like lots of men kind of getting FaceTime and sort of just like kind of moving up in the ranks. But for some reason, we just saw a lack of accessibility there. Um, so we created a mentorship program where we pair um, six chosen young female composers with um, A-list mentors for one-on-one -on -one sessions, mentorship sessions, just to sort of give them insight into like what this career path can look like you know, more specifically how they work and how they do things because demystifying that process can be just really, really important for a young composer. Mm -hmm. um, the Alliance, I feel, has always done incredible, incredible work to try and foster a, a warm, important community where we can voice our concerns and we can take active steps to change the shape of all of this. I do find that since the Me Too movement started. Um, there are a lot of studios who are doing a good job of wanting to meet new talent. I also feel like there's a layer of, I'll be very transparent here, it just feels like there's a layer of <laughs> wanting to just like appear, you know, like just just appeasing the masses and being like, oh look, we have a diversity initiative, or look, we have we have this, you know, we're 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 doing something. But like underneath it all, there's really no substance there. There's no mm -hmm. real connection being made. Um, there are some initiative programs that do a very good job, but I do feel like you know everyone just sort of scrambled and they're like, we have to we have to keep our image and make it seem like we're really involving these people when there's very really performative no. action. So yeah. performative and. Um, that's really disappointing, and I think there's always going to be an element of that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But my hope is that my my biggest thing is that I want younger generations of women to at least be able to see women doing this as a job. Just creating visibility for women, I think, is the biggest thing in music and so many other things. Um, 
you know, like just having a young girl be able to see a woman conduct an orchestra and realize, oh, I, you know, I didn't know I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah, like going to just, just like hearing someone talk about, yeah, like um, a female cinematographer or just, just all of these things. It's just, there's an unconscious bias there, unfortunately, I think. And I think young girls just don't even know they can do this because there's such a lack of visibility and there's a lack of opportunity for women. Um, so I think, I think that's, improving slowly. I think the Alliance does a great job of that. I think we all just need to have more self-awareness. I mm-hmm. think I think it's so easy just to be like, I need to hire a composer. Oh, who's that guy that I know through that other guy? It's just like, it's so easy just to stay in this, your comfortable heads, your headspace. And it's, it's that we have a greater responsibility to each other when there are statistics that are this alarming. Um, and it's not a hard thing to do either. It's just mm-hmm. like a, you know, it, it really isn't. So I think things are um, certainly improving. There are so many women um, scoring incredible TV series. There's so many brilliant women who are, who are just really um, such a force for change and who have been carving this path for so many years. Um, so it, it's promising and it's exciting seeing so many female composers succeeding, but there are so many more. <laughs> there are so many more that we we need to involve and we need to hear their voices. Yeah, it's like you said, it's closing that gap between the people in training and the people wanting and the people in work. And exactly, what is that gap that's there? Yeah, so much to talk about, so little time. <laughs> <I know. laughs> What's next for you, so we can all keep an eye on it? I just finished up a DLC for Assassin's Creed. Um, It's called Siege of Paris. That's coming out this summer at some point. I'm not sure when, Um, but that was fun. I'd never done a video game before. So that was a really fun experience to be able to do that. Um, And then I'm diving into um, a bunch of projects at once. Um, One of them is a a documentary feature film, um, also directed by Gillian Jacobs, who directed Marvel 616 episode that I worked on. Um, and it's about a robotics competition and follows these young high school kids all over the world. Um, it's a really wonderful story. Um, and then I'm just about to start season three of Step Up High Water, which is now on Stars. Um, it's been a couple years since the last season, so it's it's gonna be it's gonna be fun getting back into that headspace for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also doing a an animated short for Universal Illumination, um, which has been different. I've never really done a ton of animation before, so that's cool. Um, there's something else in there that I'm forgetting, but those are the main things that are that are on the docket. I so, love it. Yeah. Everything will be linked in the show notes so that everyone can can check it out. And Thank you. Um, something that I ask now at every episode, if you could look at your younger self, let's, I don't know, make her eight, nine years old, what would you say? Don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> My dad always says that to me all the time. And that's just such great advice. Um, I no, I mean, I think I think just just be true to yourself. Like I feel like I've I've always tried to be that way. And I think that's the way that I was raised. Um, like don't try to mold yourself to be anybody mm-hmm. else. Don't try to change yourself to fit into a box or fit another person's standards creatively or personally. Um, I think that those are hard things to understand when you're younger because I think you do it without realizing it. But I think the most important thing that anybody can do is just be genuine and approach their life in a genuine way because when you're making art and you're making disingenuous art, I mean, that's one of the worst things that we can do. And that's what we're seeing more and more of. There's so much content and there's so much of that happening. Um, So I think just, yeah, if I were looking at my younger self, I would just say, just, just do what you're doing. Just, just keep on and, (laughs) and don't, don't mold yourself to be any other way. 
Thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming on. I'm just so excited for the world to feast on the music of Jupiter's legacy and all the other amazing stuff that you've done. So thank you so, so thank much. Thank you, Nadine. And we can't wait to see everything that you're gonna thank do. Thank you. It was such a pleasure talking to you. That's the end of the episode. Thank you for tuning in. Please don't forget to check out Stephanie's encapsulating work listed in the show notes. I learned so much in the making of this episode. I want to thank Stephanie for joining the platform and Wiper PR for making this conversation happen. Let's keep amplifying this work. So if you have a minute, leave a quick review. It is the surest way that we can get the algorithms to catch on to the brilliance of these women here. You can share this episode on your socials and tag me at Nadine Rumor or the podcast at In Her Lens Podcast. We are halfway through the season, y'all. Where does time go? Back next week. Until then, stay healthy, get some sunshine, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.